Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. We are going to be talking about something that always shocks me when I see some of the data. We're going to be talking today about methamphetamine addiction. You know, with the last year of COVID, a lot of folks have felt like we don't hear so much about addiction to various substances, whether it be opioids or cocaine or methamphetamines. We may not be aware of what's going on out there. And so today we're going to be speaking with somebody who is not only aware, but is dealing with the crisis firsthand. Dr. Mark Baker is a friend and colleague of mine. He is an emergency room physician uh, practicing mainly at Polymomy Medical Center. And today we're going to talk about how meth addiction inspired him to create a task force. Who's on that task force and what all of us need to do to help support the efforts to end this particular deadly addiction as there are ways in which it affects each and every one of us. So thank you for joining me today on The Body Show, Dr. Baker. Oh, Kathy, I am really excited to be able to uh, do this. Well, you know, it's rare that I hear somebody say they're excited about meth addiction, but this excited you because you're in the emergency room. And in fact, you know, in my practice in internal medicine, I don't see people coming in very much that are of of the situation where they're coming in uh, acutely intoxicated or in some way injured or harmed by meth or even or many other addictions, just because I think the patients that I see present to an office, they come on time, they're generally not having life-threatening emergencies. But that's not the case in an emergency room. You know, by definition, people are seeing you when they might be at their worst. What are some of the situations that you're encountering that are affected by methamphetamines? You know, we see a variety of things. You would think that maybe the biggest problem would just be somebody who took too much and they get real sick. But really, I think the biggest problem is what it does to the heart over years, uh, where patients end up with heart failure, their heart doesn't uh, work as well, fills up with fluid. Um, And then a lot of uh, psychiatric problems that we see related to that. And that's in addition to somebody who just took way too much and gets uh, psychotic and crazy and we need to kind of sedate them to let them sleep it off. So you mentioned that there's a couple of different manifestations. Let's talk about those for a moment. You might see somebody who's acutely psychotic. So if somebody has taken too much or this is their first experience with meth, what sort of presentation might you see in an emergency room and who brings them in? It depends. Often uh, the paramedics will bring somebody in if they're really acutely intoxicated. Uh, An example would be somebody who has been using it for three days straight, uh, comes in with a spouse who says they haven't slept in 72 hours, they're now going crazy. And I look in the chart and it's happened before. It's not like the first time. And we sedate them with uh, medication to just basically put them to sleep and they can sleep for 12 hours and then they kind of wake up and figure out where they are. Um, uh, Really incredible stories. So I'd like to hear some of those stories. You know, you mentioned that somebody might come in acutely, acutely in in the midst of 
a methamphetamine crisis, like they might not sleep for several days. Is meth one of those drugs that would not necessarily make somebody feel sleepy and tired? You know, sometimes we hear about opioids that make somebody sleep for too long, or they kind of shut the awareness part of the brain down, whereas meth seems to cause maybe a sense of hyper alertness. Is that right? It does. So we see uh, tweaking is kind of when uh, the person might be somewhat hyper alert, but also maybe having a little bit of a hard time concentrating um, compared to then when they're coming off of it, sometimes you can't wake them up. Like I'll go into a room and try to talk to somebody and they start falling asleep and you kind of can tell from talking to them a little bit that it's probably that they're coming off of meth. But really, maybe one of the worst uh, uh, things to do with uh, meth and and there are case reports of deaths related to uh, like a traffic stop trying to hide the methamphetamine, swallowing it uh, in a little baggie. And several hours later, uh, they're sick enough that they either die from it or I've had to intubate to put a tube in to keep somebody breathing for for that reason. So they could wind up being so affected by it that they're not even able to maintain their own breathing status, that that's causing such a problem. You mentioned that for some people it could cause some damage, like heart damage, over the course of several years. So I know this might be a strange question, but is meth one of those drugs that when you get exposed to it and you start to use it regularly, you can live for a few years in that situation? I guess my naive thought is you get addicted to it, it causes a lot of physical difficulties, and then on short order, within a year or so, you know, you're not able to function. But it sounds like there might be people with like a low-level usage and they're able to maintain that for years so much that it affects their heart? Uh, Yes, and I'm not sure if I would even say it's uh, low. I don't really know how much it is, but uh, the the heart, uh, the impact of the heart is not too hard to figure out. Uh, I guess I could give an example. The paramedics will call and they've got a 38-year-old who's got shortness of breath and they send us his EKG and I signs on the EKG that it's heart failure, and I think, okay, it's a 38-year-old guy, and he's got heart failure, and he really shouldn't have heart failure, but um, he's been using meth, and so and you don't know that until uh, the person gets there. There are some other reasons for heart failure, but uh, the, the most common reason that we're seeing now is uh, meth-related. Is that in a certain age group of population? I mean, I would think, you know, a lot of my patients are older. They might be geriatric. So in that case, you know, if you're 75, having heart failure is is not as unexpected based on potentially other risk factors or how long you have lived. But when you're 38, that doesn't sound like that should be, you shouldn't have heart failure from natural causes at 38 unless something is seriously wrong. So is it an age group that you're seeing more of the people that come in with cardiac issues related to meth? start in the mid-30s and then extend all the way into the 70s where there are people who are maintaining uh, their ability to, to function. Um, and it might not be uh, ideal, but it's, uh, you know, they're kind of teetering a little bit. In fact, one of the, one of the people that inspired me uh, to get involved with this is uh, a really nice gentleman, and there's an incredible number of really nice people that end up using meth. Um, he was, so I started working in the ER and at Polymomy in 1989, and probably between about 1992 and 
97, he was in there frequently for his heart failure. He ended up on a, a transplant list at Stanford, and we were all rooting for him. Um, and then, unfortunately, he uh, started using meth again, and they won't do a transplant, heart transplant on somebody who can't stay off of meth. And he died about six months later. Oh, that sounds absolutely tragic. He was young. Too young. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. I'm talking with Dr. Mark Baker. He is an emergency room physician who has unfortunately seen the firsthand the effects of methamphetamine on our community. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other cases that inspired him to take some action and do something about it and discuss what he's done and how that could help all of us to keep one another safe, but also to address some of the needs of people who may have some addiction problems. They can't be just left by themselves and not have society help to at least find ways to encourage them to get some help for their medical condition. And addiction is a medical condition. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. And right before the break, I was speaking with my buddy and colleague, my emergency room friend, Dr. Mark Baker. You know, and I said, addiction is a medical problem. Do you think that's a true statement? Or do you think addiction is more of a a problem of lack of will? I mean, I often wonder if the reason that we tend to look down on people who are addicted to substances is because we don't think of it as the medical problem that I truly believe that it is. Is that a problem or is that just something that I may be, you know, maybe too sensitive to? <laughs> Do you have about two hours? Well, we we only have about 20 more minutes tonight, but uh, we can do many shows on this. But do you think the general community views it as a medical condition like you or I do? Or do you think it's more of like a personal failure thing? Um, you know, there there is, you touch on probably the most important word I would use related to your question is stigma. And there is a stigma that's associated with a person who's uh, misusing any drug. And in particular, like opiates, methamphetamine, um, other drugs that, that get abused. And that stigma, it, it's not just, it's, you know, probably between the person using and their family, um, between their friends, and then it crosses over to uh, healthcare providers who can uh, stigmatize a, a patient for using drugs. But it's, you know, the factors that go into whether or not somebody is using and wants to continue using a drug probably are related to a combination of genetics, what you're exposed to, where you grow up, who you grow up with, who offers you something at too young of an age. It's just it's really complicated. Well, and it makes me think, you know, what what a lot of people may not realize, as you mentioned, genetics. And in some folks, you know, they've done studies, particularly looking at opioids, and they found that there are certain types of pain receptors in the brain. We call them mu receptors. And uh, there are certain types of mu receptors that are in different individuals that make them uh, 
glob on or connect to that opioid molecule in the brain in such a way that it's different than it might be for someone else. So that, you know, literally biochemically, there is a difference in what that drug does to certain people versus other people. And so that may be why those people who don't use opioids or who who say it makes me feel sick, I don't know why anybody would ever take too much of it may not have the same experience. So unlike, you know, a blood pressure medicine that we hope works similar for everybody, it's a different phenomenon. So not everybody has the same physical experience when they take this particular substance, and therefore they may not have the same ability to to not use it, I think. It reminds me of like, you know, like smoking. Uh, I have some patients that incredibly can quit smoking overnight. They just say, I'm not going to smoke anymore. But the vast majority say it's so hard and I feel a craving and I feel like I need to have some more cigarettes. And then I try and stop and it's a much more prolonged process. Um, but that also is is a medical issue. I think we need to take away some of the stigma because I think that doesn't serve patients well. Now, you mentioned that you see some of these folks. You know, you were seeing folks come in like the 38-year-old or like the person that you described back in the early part of your career who wound up on a transplant list and unfortunately went back to using the drug that made them ineligible. All of this motivated you to change what you were doing. And you don't have a lot of extra free time. You know, not very many of us do. But it made you decide to create a task force. Tell me about that. And what you think the task force needs as far as who needs to be on it and what are your goals? Well, thanks. I um, probably started just by thinking this problem is getting out of hand and was actually at a conference where there was an inspirational speaker who did some incredible things related to education on the uh, East Coast uh, in kind of like poor inner city areas. And I guess I was inspired and I just thought, well, that problem is just getting worse and worse. And I know over maybe the 30-plus years that I've worked in the ER, I've seen some intermittent efforts related to combating methamphetamine, but I hadn't seen anything very recently. And at the end of the meeting, I said, meth is getting to be a bigger problem. I want to do something about it. If there's anybody in the audience who wants to join me, let me know. So I, that's kind of where it started. And I got um, probably about eight names at that conference. And then connections from those people to other people were now, I've got a task force of about 50 members um, with a pretty good uh, variety of organizations contributing to uh, both ideas and to uh, hopefully solutions. Well, and I think the identification that it's going to take more than just one person is a key element, you know, but it takes one person to get inspired as you were, and then it takes other people to say, I want to be part of it. So when you were when you were putting yourself out there, which I, I really appreciate the effort that you took to stand up and say, I'm going to do something, I'm going to create a task force, what sort of organizations did you think needed to be part of that? Because it certainly crosses all different all different racial strata and economic strata, and you know it, it can it affects all of us. I mean, if there's if there's anything that we've learned over the last year or so with coronavirus, things that happen in other locations directly impact us, and even in our own local community, it has a direct impact because these are people who unfortunately might might 
be in cars and, and having accidents. And then there's other people in those cars. That could be you or me. Or they're they're desperate and they may be committing crimes to get money to get meth. So that person who is a victim could be you or me. So I think that uh, that the idea that you're going to fix the problem and know that it's going to take more than yourself because it does affect all of us is a really critical point. Who did you immediately get approached by and what organizations are on your task force? You know, the most immediate were probably just more personal, but then through connections. I I now have members from the State Department of Health, from uh, University of Hawaii, Coalition for a Drug-Free Hawaii, uh, the Hawaii Health and Harm Reduction Center, uh, Hinamauka, uh, high-intensity drug trafficking area that's kind of a federal uh, drug-related um, uh, program. And, uh, boy, there's uh, got to be others that I'm not thinking about. I've got social workers, emergency physicians, emergency nurses, psychiatrists, addiction specialists. And, um, we're putting our heads together. And actually what we came up with was we have to do something for prevention, probably our number one goal. Now, when you think of all the folks that you have coming to the table, that sounds like a really good uh, group of folks who may all have some some reason why they need to help end this, but also have some resources as well. It sounds like this is a way to get everybody collectively to come up with some ideas. And this led to you developing a website. And the website has a lot of information on it. What is the website and what kind of information might people get if they were to go take a look at it and wonder how big is the scope of this problem? Because I think that's really the key. I don't think a lot of folks, myself included, really understood how vast this this problem has become, particularly in the islands. Uh, well, the uh, the name is pretty easy. It's endmeth, E-N-D-M-E-T-H dot org uh, for the website. And it's organized into some information about uh, who we are, uh, kind of like what's wrong with meth, why endmeth, why is it a problem, basically. And I've got a data page that I think is really important. And our, our group, our task force is pretty focused on data. There, there's some data out there. I would like to see more data. There's also uh, a page that I am hoping I can get a lot of interest in where anybody who's concerned about the meth problem can go to the stories page, download an app uh, onto their phone, and then record their story. It could be somebody who used to use meth, family who's been impacted, healthcare workers, could be a current user. Anybody, it's impacting all of us. Well, that's definitely the case. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show, and I'm speaking with Dr. Mark Baker. He is an emergency room physician who decided when he saw the meth problem get out of hand that he wanted to do something about it. He created a task force, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the statistics, and we're going to look at how much greater Hawaii meth use is compared with the rest of the country to help people realize the scale of this problem. And we'll also brainstorm some things that all of us can do to help address it. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. 
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. Mark Baker on the line. He is an emergency room physician at Polymomy Medical Center, and we are talking about meth addiction, why it is a medical problem, why some people might get addicted and others hopefully won't ever be in that situation, but why it's important for all of us to think about what we can do and participate in playing a role to help end meth addiction. So, you know, I'm on your website, www.endmeth.org. And I'm curious because I'm looking at this graph, Mark, and I'm hoping you can explain it to me. It is Hawaii meth use compared with the rest of the country. And why does it look like we have a huge problem here that nobody else does? Is this something that you mentioned? There's a there's a resident that you worked with who was from Ohio and said, you know, they have an opioid problem, but They've never seen anything like this. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we do have in the emergency department sometimes some visiting training physicians, and it was one particularly busy night with probably about three patients who I was going to watch overnight who had heart failure because they, they probably would get well enough to go home. And I remember looking at her thinking, well, I wonder how much meth they see in Ohio, and and her response was, uh, oh, we have an opiate problem in Ohio, but I've never seen anything like this. And we were seeing both heart failure problems, the kind of psychiatric issues, homelessness, revolving around meth. So what? who is the average user? And from what you see, granted, this is this is your experience and you're serving the local community where you're practicing medicine, but, and who do you see come in with these problems? And what do you see as sort of the sequelae? Because, you know, I think the other thing that often gets unrecognized is the fact that when somebody has an addiction like this, it's an expensive habit. It's not something that you know, you just, it's, it's, it doesn't take just a couple of dollars. This is, this is something that depending on your usage of it, it's going to require quite a bit of resources, but often it also leads to destruction of somebody's ability to work or even to be part of their family. If somebody knows that someone has a problem, their family may not interact with them so much anymore. So there's some long-term sequelae that lead to some other consequences, even leading to homelessness. Who is it that you're seeing and, and, are you seeing it in all stages of the the situation? Are you seeing people that come in and they you wouldn't think they were addicted, and then others who who now have lost everything? Um, I, I see a pretty good variety of uh, patients, but keep in mind also in the emergency department we're kind of like the uh, uh, the fail safe method for healthcare. So when somebody doesn't have insurance, if if they are homeless and they uh, have a hard time getting in. Uh, to see you in the office, uh, we end up taking care of them in the emergency department. And and those are the ones, probably the worst off related to meth, where maybe somebody started using it and a couple of years later that's all they're doing and they can't hold a job down and their family finally says, uh, you know, uh, you can't stay here anymore and then they're homeless. I've talked to uh, family members who say, oh, I haven't seen my brother in a couple of years, but I know he's still on the street. And, you know, one thing you mentioned, that the, the cost of uh, this addiction uh, has been a little bit variable with time. I don't know exactly how much it would cost per week, but I know from uh, Rico Witt, uh, the wonderful Haida, the 
high-intensity drug trafficking area uh, representative uh, was explaining uh, some of the terminology, in fact. Uh, but he had mentioned like uh, two eight balls per week is probably about a quarter ounce of meth, and that probably only costs about $100. Um, I don't know how many hits that is, though. I don't know how high that keeps you. But it's a long-lasting drug. So it's like the user uh, may use whatever amount they want to, and then they're high for 12 hours. Well, and you mentioned that this causes a lot of difficulties. Family members may not even be in contact, but they know somebody's out on the street, which is certainly a a huge concern. You know, it makes me wonder if part of the reason that I don't see it in my practice is maybe I don't ask. And that's sort of a curious challenge to providers to ask your patients because that's how you'll find out. And you may not even find out, but if you don't ask, you never will. So, you know, you've inspired me, uh, Mark, to really take a look at my patients and ask them the question because it isn't, this is not something that only a certain group of people do. People of any ethnic and economic background can get involved in this. And if I don't know about it, I can't certainly help them. What are some of the ways that loved ones and family members and the society at large can help with this problem? What can we all collectively do to help you and your task force, but to help the general community at large so that we can reduce the, the meth epidemic? That's a great question. I actually was just making an analogy between what we as a community need to do and what an individual does. And the first thing I always tell somebody who's kind of struggling with an addiction is the first step is to admit that you have a problem. I think we as a community need to admit and recognize that we have a problem. Uh, Meth, uh, compared to all the 50 states, uh, meth started here. So we not only have a big problem, other states now have a big problem, but I think we have the ability, we are a great community, and we have the ability to pull ourselves together and help solve this, solve this problem as a community. There's, for the individual, um, the resources that are listed on the website, uh, one, Hawaii Cares, uh, phone numbers on the website. And then there's like some national resources that are available also. But we've got to recognize that this is a problem, come up with uh, solutions, teach our children not to use it. It's become multi-generational, and I just really hate to see that um, and solve this problem. Now, you mentioned something that a lot of people may not realize. It started here. Mm-hmm. Why is that? How um, is that? Well, it, it probably our connection with Southeast Asia, um, maybe like in the mid-'80s, um, from what I read, around 1986 was maybe when meth was to Hawaii, and by 1989, it was a big enough deal here that there was a, an article in the L.A. Times uh, that described the huge meth problem in, in Hawaii in 1989. And then the kind of ironic thing is it, there was no mention of meth being a problem in Los Angeles at that time. But if you flash forward 30 years, there's a 2019 article in the L.A. Times describing the huge meth problem in Los Angeles. So it really did seem to find its way here and then spread to other locations. Has anybody else 
found a way, you know, sometimes when we think about task forces and what we can do, has any other task force found a solution or are we really needing to invent the process here and then hopefully have that spread to other locations where there's also a meth epidemic? Um, Iceland has had, it's kind of a long ways away, but Iceland has had a really good approach related to uh, community intervention it, for them, it was alcohol um, to get uh, kids to stop drinking. Um, so there are some solutions out there. Uh, and, you know, we can model some solutions after uh, what Iceland did, uh, but it, I think it's going to be more difficult to, uh, to quell the mess epidemic than uh, alcohol, but it can be done. Well, you know, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. You have inspired me to look at how often I'm asking and maybe just not asking if any of my patients happen to be using meth and or family members, because I think that also is something that is a huge crisis, even in families, to try and address. And, you know, I will absolutely want to support and be involved in helping our community to admit we have a problem and also work on finding ways to help take care of that problem as we are a great community and want to help one another. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. We have heard from Dr. Mark Baker, emergency room doctor at Polymoe Medical Center. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk more right here on The Body Show. We'll see you then.